but it's a joy to be with you. Um, this is, it's now 18 years since I've been coming to share fellowship with you on an occasional basis. And you still invite me back, so I don't know if that's, you have no discernment and no wisdom, or it's just you're so incredibly gracious as a group of people. I'm not entirely sure. But it's a joy. It really is a joy to be with you. And uh, Gwyn and I are here for the conference this week, and we have a team of 19 with us. Um, I think 10 are going to Kedron, and 9 are serving at the uh, at the Refresh Conference doing the childcare. And we've got a bunch of our staff are here too as well. So it's a great opportunity to sort of be with you. And, uh, this is our 20th year on the foreign mission field. So we started in Austria in 1998, and we were there for four and a bit years. We then moved to Hungary for eight years, and we've been in New Zealand now for whatever whatever's left of that period of time. And so um, it's a joy to be able to kind of um, follow the Lord. I mean, irrespective of ministry, I think it's a joy to follow the Lord, and uh, and it's great to be with you. Uh, so today we're going to be in Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to Matthew, and uh, I think there's if I, if I were to make a statement such as, you know, we are to be different from the world and the culture around us, I, I think you, we would all agree uh, that that's a true statement, that we are to be different from the world and the culture around us. And, and so often when we consider that, we consider it in the light of holiness, don't we? And, and rightly so. We're to live differently from, from the culture around us. You know, and so there should be a difference between us and the world in how we live and we act and, and, and behave. And that's, that's true. But there's also another vital aspect in which it's also true. And that is about our experience. What we experience and our experience should be different from those around us. Uh, and I'm speaking in one particular context. And I'm speaking in the context of anxiety and worry. We shouldn't be worriers like the world. We shouldn't live in continual anxiety like the world because of Jesus. And Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at this, this ugly topic of worry this morning. So whether that's encouraging, not encouraging, frightening, or not, I don't entirely know. But if you want to turn to Matthew 6, and we're going to have a look at a passage which is very familiar it's very familiar to us. And it might take a minute or two just to set the context and get everything in the right place to talk about it. But ultimately, that's what we want to do. So I want to pray, and then uh, I'll introduce what we're going to do this morning. And ultimately, we're going to be in Matthew 6, kind of 25 to 34, that passage of do not worry. Right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and uh, recognize, Lord, we need you, and we want to be people who live in the light of everything that you have done for us. Not, not simply in the words that we speak and the things that we attest to, but in our very heart and experience. And Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, as we look at your word, we pray that you just lead us, you teach us, you, you kind of have your way in our hearts in this time, and that you would continue to minister to us. And Father, thank you for the worship, Lord. Thank you just for... Lord, for myself, just to be able to enter into worship this morning and just, just thank you for who you are. Not just what you've done, but who you are, but also for the things that you have done, you've done for us. So, Lord, as we, we look at your word, it, it's your word. You're the only one who has the right to break it. 
and to, to break it to us as the bread of life, Lord. And we pray that you would do that this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Caesar said this, and the Caesars weren't necessarily balanced human beings, if you know your history. But Caesar said this, and I think it's quite profound. He says, the fear of the future and the regret of the past are the twin enemies of the soul. The fear of the future and the regret of the past are the twin enemies of the soul. And I think there's an element of truth to that, isn't there? You know, we our present is often impacted by our regret. Things that happened, I wish they hadn't, wouldn't have happened that way. I wish there hadn't been a ball tampering, you know, issue. I wish, whatever it may be, you know, the regret of the past, and obviously much serious, more serious issue, affects our present. And with that too, we're also concerned with the what if. The fear of the future also impacts our present. And he rightly said, they're the twin enemies of soul. And so it's often our regret, the things that have happened in the past, and our fear of what happens next. What happens if my health changes? Or what happens if I lose my job? What happens if the All Blacks win again? You know, what happens? The fear that comes with all those different things. And impacts our now, doesn't it? It impacts, even though it may have been in the past, or it may be a long way down the road, it impacts our now. And there's a point in, in, in Matthew 6, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the world, so to speak, though he has great wisdom there. He's actually really speaking to the people that are his. He's speaking to the people that are his disciples. And so there's a unique element to what's being said in it, because it's really to those that say, I follow the Lord. He's speaking to that group of people. And in that passage, he, he, he says some extraordinary things. And we're actually going to look at, at what is a very familiar passage to us. And, and it's probably in your Bible, it's probably headed in one of several ways. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. And probably in, 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 in words that almost have more bold type and weight to them than anywhere else. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. And so I'm going to read from Matthew 6, um, verse 25, down to the end of verse 34. And that'll be our text for today. And then we're going to we kind of set it in a context, and then we're going to break it down and have a look at what the Lord has for us today. So, and I'm going to read in New King James, if, you, if you're following. So. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. And I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
Amen. Father, bless us as we look in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Matthew 6 here, there's a direct, what's being said here is a direct connection to what's just been said, which is fairly obvious because it's part of one whole thing. And Jesus has really been talking about focus, having the right point of focus. Now, I wear contact lenses. I'm as blind as the proverbial bat. Take them out, I am completely lost. I value being able to focus and see you and actually find my way around. Occasionally, I put them in the wrong eyes. Have you ever got contact lenses and put them in the wrong eyes? Yeah, the world gets very, very strange at that moment in time. right? But focus is something that aids how we live. It clearly. Now, Jesus has just said, he's talked about money and treasure. Make sure you have the right focus, that your treasure's in heaven and not just upon the earth. Because you can only look in one place. Ever try to look in two places at once? I mean, just try it. It'll be amusing, nothing else. It, you can't do it. You simply can't do it. So he talks about money and treasure. He then talks about light and darkness. If your eyes full of light, your body will. But if your eyes full of darkness you'd be full of evil. You can't look at those two things. Again, he creates, make sure you're looking in the right place at the things of light, not the things of darkness. And then ultimately he says, you can't serve two masters. And he uses the idea of, not employers really, but of kings and kingdoms. That's the whole context here. You can't serve one and serve the other because you're going to love one and be loyal and you're going to hate the other one. You can't do it. It's, and, and it's not something that from a desire that's a problem, you don't have the ability to. You can't do it. It's like, ever tried to run in two directions at the same time? It doesn't end well. It really doesn't end well. And he talks about this idea of being pulled in different directions. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been pulled in different directions? Anybody out there? Yeah. I and mean, we do that, don't we? You know, should I? Shouldn't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? You know, do I go to my parents at Christmas? Do I go to your parents at Christmas? Do we take the children? What do we do? You know, all those sort of things that pull us in a multiplicity of directions. Well, Jesus is going to actually deal with that issue. And he's going to deal with that issue not as a principle, but as an experience. And in the next ten verses, he's going to deal, the subject matter is really worry or anxiety. On six occasions in those ten verses, Jesus talks about anxiousness or worry in some form. And he's going to talk about the privilege of not living in anxiety and of not living in worry. And that's the whole focus of these 10 verses. We have, if you're a believer today, if you're a person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a unique relationship to worry. We're in a unique and privileged place because Jesus says we don't have to. And when we look at that, we're actually going to see he's a little bit stronger than we don't have to. He's a little bit stronger than this is good advice. He's actually going to command us not to do it. Now, I don't know about you. I'm just built in the way. If somebody tells me not to do it, what's your immediate reaction? I'll probably to find out why I want to do it. You know, there's something, somehow, sometimes telling us not to do something doesn't necessarily engender a good response. You know, I, I don't care what you think. 
right? However it may come out, you know, it's, it's not a godly, by the way, it's not a godly way of responding, by the way, if you haven't worked that out, but it's so often the case. If somebody tells you not to do something, the immediate reaction is, I'm going to do it, or why not? I want to. I have rights. Jesus is actually going to tell us not to worry. So in these ten verses, he's actually going to give us four commands. On four occasions in this passage, he's going to command us to do something, and to do it a lot, and to keep doing it continually. And on two occasions, he's going to, he's going to give us the why. Because, you know, I, I found it really helps that if people tell me the why of something, it kind of helps. If people tell me to do something and don't give me the why, I find it very difficult. doesn't mean I shouldn't and should, but I find it difficult. Because if people give you the reason why we don't have to worry, that makes a difference. And Jesus does in this passage. He's going to give us four commands, and he's going to give us two reasons why we are not. And he's both going to evolve around the word looking. You need to look at this. You need to see this. You need to understand something by looking at it. So four commands and two words for looking or seeing. Now, there are some 366 occasions in the scriptures where in some form it says, do not worry or do not fear. Interesting, isn't it? Literally one for every day of the year and even of each year. It's something that runs through the entirety of scriptures. And yet, it's a thing that impacts our days. So Jesus is actually going to do this. Now, the first thing he does, he starts in that place. I'll be looking at the right Bible here. He starts in that place. In verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than the food and the body more than clothing? The first thing he does is he gives us a command. He says, do not worry. Now, we need to understand this. He's not, he's not talking about the individual instance of, oh no, did I leave the oven on? Because we all worry on a daily basis about individual things that come. He's not condemning us on that basis. What he's saying is, don't continue to live in a lifestyle where your life is ruined or ruled by anxiety and worry. He's not dealing with the individual instance that strikes all of us, like the Bulldogs might actually win something. You know, whatever it may be. He's actually dealing with this don't live in that place where your life is continually governed by, what about this? What about that? What about the things of the past? What about the things of the future? Because the whole passage deals with focus. And you can have it in one place. And ultimately, he's going to say, if you have your focus on me, the other stuff is the other stuff, and it will take care of it. Or more accurately, I will take care of it. The first thing he says, he gives a command. He says, do not worry. Now we need to understand the word. The word means to be pulled in two directions. The root word for anxiety and worry means to be split. Doesn't that describe worry? Doesn't that describe it? The anxiety of, oh no, what about this? What about this? Should I do this? And being torn between two things. And will this happen? Won't this happen? That's the very description of the word worry in the original language, to be pulled and split in more than one direction. And he says, don't. And he says, don't worry about life, um, your soul, 
eating and drinking. And, and he's really dealing with this idea of, 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 of our whole well-being. Don't let worry rule those whole areas. You know, it, it's not a question about what's for dinner. Don't worry about what's for dinner. That's not, it's a bigger picture. It's like, in terms of how we live, our well-being, you know, don't let that become the focus of absolutely everything. You know, perspective's an important thing, isn't it? It's amazing that how perspective affects how we look at things. Do something with me. Turn with me, if you would, for a minute, to um, keep your fingers in Matthew or stick something in Matthew, and turn with me to Genesis, because it's amazing how our circumstances affect our perspective. Wouldn't you say? You know, just just a, a, a couple of things happen during the day and all of a sudden God doesn't love me, or my wife doesn't love me, or I hate coffee, or whatever it may actually be taking place. And, and it's often our circumstances affect our perspective. And they may not be true, but they affect our perspective, and it's powerful. Turn with me to Genesis 42. And, and there's an interesting moment in the life of, oh, in the story of Joseph, where, and you guys are Babylonians, you know the story of Joseph. You know, you know the situation is that basically the last 15 chapters of the book of Genesis are devoted to the issue of, of Joseph and his times. And you've got the, the brothers, and ultimately Joseph is cast out, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, goes through a whole range of situations over about a 12, 13-year period, and he ends up being the second most powerful man on the earth. And during this time, he's, he's, he's under the wisdom of God, has uh, uh, meant that, Israel, uh, that, that Egypt has been protected against the famine that was coming. Through wise stewardship and responding to God, Egypt's the only place that has food. And that's basically the story at this point in time. So his brothers come to get food, because the only place of food is Egypt. And in doing so, they have to leave one of their brethren, which in that case is Simeon. And then they go back. And the grain runs out, and they're faced with this horrible situation of having to go back. And a discussion in, ensues within the family. And there's a unique moment in Genesis 42 where you get some insight with this. And in Genesis 42, it's basically the father in this instance is, is responding, Jacob is responding to what's going on. And this is what he says in Genesis 42, if you want to have a look at verse about verse 36, and I hope it's the right place. Yeah, and I'm going to read him from verse 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, they surprised and each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundle of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And in some of your translations, it might say, All the world is against me, because that's what he's kind of saying. Now, he truly believes it, but is it true? No. Joseph is alive. Simeon is alive. And God's working out a plan through extraordinary circumstances to preserve the nation of Israel with food and the line of Messiah so we can get saved. He couldn't be further from the truth. The world's not against him. God's for him and he's about to save the entire nation. But where he's at at that moment in time, all of a sudden, his perspective is the world's against me. It's a powerful thing. Important to have God's perspective on things. And where is like that, doesn't it? It impacts and invades so many 
things. Jesus, in the first instance, says, do not worry. Do not worry about all these things that govern your well-being. Don't be anxious. Don't be pulled in different directions about them. And he's going to give us reasons why. And the first thing he does, he's going to give us, he's going to tell us to look at something. So we just pick up again in Matthew 6, and we're in that place where it says, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor eat, nor gather into barns, yet you have any feeds, and are you not worth more value? Are you not more value than they? Now, the second command is look. Again, it's not advice, he says. You need to look at this. And he uses a word that describes, look very closely, consider this, it's important. Because in doing something, you're going to learn something. That's how he expresses it, he commands them to look. And he uses the picture of the birds. And he says, they don't sow, they don't reap, and they don't gather. He uses words that describe hard work. I don't know if you've ever worked on a farm. I mean, we're, we're pretty much sort of in city here, aren't we? I mean, I, I live in the dairy capital of New Zealand. I live in a place called Reparoa. And we have cows. Boy, there are cows everywhere. They're outside my window, there's cows. And there's literally nothing else but cows. And, and if you go, if you tell anybody you live in Reparoa, they immediately launch into a detailed conversation about what you do with cows. And, and I don't do anything with cows except eat them. I find them very delightful when cooked properly. Uh, but And I'm not a farmer. And the one thing I've learned about being in New Zealand, I have friends who are farmers. I love farmers. I think they're amazing. I love their character. I love what they do. I love how they affect our community. I love of what they do to basically undergird the life of our country and community, and probably the same here. But I never want to be one. I don't want to be one. It is too hard work. I'd rather find some other way of making a living. So he uses words here of, 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 that describe hard work. He uses the words for sow, and they gather, and they put things in barns. He uses a physical intensive process, and he says, look at the birds. They don't do that. And yet what happens? They're your heavenly father providentially cares for them. Now, he's not making the point, don't work hard, be lazy. He's not making that point. But he's making the point that God is the one who provides and keeps and cares in his providential care. And you can see it, you look outside at the birds, and you'll see that God does this. And it's not based on their activity level or intent. In New Zealand, we, we, do you have pukekos here? Uh, do, uh, do you have pukekos? Pukekos, it's a bird, and it's, and it's like the nearest thing to a cartoon character that lives. Because they're bright blue with a red beak, and they walk around in a really funny way, and they're thoroughly useless. They, they just, they just strut around. They're like literally a cartoon character. And, and, and they don't do anything useful. I mean, you can't even eat them, apparently. Um, and yet, they're all healthy. There's loads of them. God feeds them. They do fine. God cares. And, and he raises his point, you know, not that there is no value in other aspects of God's creation, but do you not think that you're of more value in his eyes than the Pukeko? 
And it's a question that answers itself. And you see, we can lose that perspective, can't we, because of our circumstances. We can lose that perspective that God actually, in every fibre of his being, cares for us. And because he cares, we don't need to live in an environment continually of worry. It's not a logical point. It's actually rooted in the very heart of God. He cares for us. So he's told us, he's commanded us, don't worry. Then he's commanded us to look, because we're going to learn something through the birds of the air. And then he makes a point, which again is, is obvious. How can you extend your life by worrying? And when it's translated here, it kind of makes a little bit more sense in the translation if you read it as not adding to your height, but adding to the length of your days. That's the original idea behind what's translated here. How have you, by worrying, can add any length to your days? Well, you don't, do you? If anything, worry seems to lessen the number of days that you have. You can't. So not only is it not the right perspective, but it's actually really unfruitful. It doesn't change physical things. If you worry about not having money, it doesn't change physical things. Though we have those worries. Jesus said, he commands us not to worry, then he tells his wife, learn something from the birds of the air. He gives us a third command, and it's going to be our second word for look. In verse 20 it says, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, they neither grow, neither toil, nor spin. And I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? His third command is to look again. He uses a different word. And he uses a word that says, learn by looking. The word literally means be disciple by looking at something. Watch it so closely that you learn something and you change. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, I don't know about you, but I mean, we have a love-hate relationship with the internet, don't we? I mean, I, I, I find occasionally, and, and YouTube in particular is a love-hate relationship, certainly for me. But if there's something I don't know how to do, hypocritical person I am, the first thing I do is look it up on YouTube. How do I change a battery in this? And some sad individual who I deeply like at that moment in time has suddenly put a video up of how to do this weird thing. And I find them deeply sad that they've done that, but I also find I'm so grateful in that moment of time that somebody's telling me how to do this. And I watch it intently, and I try and measure all the things up, and I try not to break it, and hopefully if all goes well... I learned something, and the situation is now different. That's what he tells us to do. Is I want you to look so closely at this that you learn something and it changes your behavior by doing that. You get discipled by what you see. That's what he actually says to us. And again, in this time, he's talking about the flowers or the lilies of the field. And we're to watch them. Now notice, he says, they do not toil. They don't spin, and yet they're beautiful. 
And he uses words that describe really hard work. He uses the word for labor or toil. Now, have you ever read Matthew eleven twenty? It says, come unto me, those that you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Ever felt that way? Yeah? Well, that's the word he uses here to describe what the flowers don't do. He says they don't labor, they don't toil, they don't spin. Now, in the making of cloth, I used to work in some of the mills, or do accident investigations in some of the mills in England, and, and it's really interesting, the process of making cloth. I mean, if you take wool, and you guys have lots of wool and we have it, there are ten steps to turn it into cloth. I'm going to offend you all by talking about the All Blacks for a moment, but please get past that. I'm going to talk about their jersey, not them, okay? Good. No anxiety, remember what we've just said. Right, now, do you know, I watched a fascinating um, documentary called by that was made by Adidas about the process of making the World Cup jersey for the last World Cup. Do you know how long it took them? It was seven years research and development to make a shirt, a jersey, right? Seven years, and they started with a piece of cloth from NASA. That's not things you hear on a daily basis. Right? And they did, they ended making a, a, a jersey that was digitally woven. Now I understand digital, I understand woven. You put the two together, I have no idea what that means. But it sounds really cool. And they made this fabric that was so difficult that they put it in a machine that's pure purpose was designed was to break and rip fabric and it couldn't do it and it broke the machine. That is a lot of work to produce something that people who are going to carry a bag of wind from one end of a field to another end of the field, that's a lot of work for that particular thing, isn't it? That's toil. He says, the lizards of the valley, they don't do that. They don't need to do that. God's providential care is so great that these look so good that even Solomon, the richest man in the world, probably at that point in time, probably the wisest, save the Lord, you know, he didn't even look that good. With all the resources available to him, all the time, all the servants, all the stuff, he didn't look that good. We had to look and learn. And then he says this word, he says, Oh, ye of little faith. Now, if you look, it's a question, not a statement. And that's the way it's written in the original. It says, do you have such little faith? Think about it. If somebody was asking that as a question, it's not a statement. He's not saying you are. He's asking, do, do you have, really, is our faith so poverty-stricken and poor that, that because of our momentary circumstances, we've suddenly lost sight of the fact that God loves us and he's going to care for us. Even, if after, even after he gave us Jesus. And that's a question we, I guess we all get to answer. And he doesn't say, you haven't got any faith. He just says, little faith. Do, do we have such little faith? There are three times in the New Testament where that statement is used. It was used in Matthew 8.26 where they were on the boat and the wind and the waves. And Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. The very things that caused them anxiety and distress were under his feet. He walked to them and he calmed everything. 
in Luke 14.31, where Peter's on the water. And again, Jesus under his feet had the waves and the wind and calmed everything and saved Peter. And in Matthew 16.8, in the feeding of the 5,000 the 4,000, when he talks about the provision, he's talking to uh, the Pharisees about the provision of bread and everything else. He says, oh, you little faith. In all those situations, Jesus dealt with the things that caused him the worry and the anxiety. And, and it's said in this way, do, do we really have that little faith? And I don't think we do. I think we have faith to trust the Lord. That's the hope of the passage. But sometimes in that moment, we just need that encouragement. Really? Do we really think God's given up on us? Do we really think he won't care for us? Do we really think it's over? I've done it one more time. It's the end. Do we really think that the blood of Christ is so poor as a solvent for all sin? And he makes this point. He says, learn from the field, the flowers. Learn. And look at them. They're temporal. You know, they're here today. and Tomorrow, we burn them. They lose their glory in a matter of days. He says, are we really... Have we really lost sight of the wonder of the heart of, and the grace of God towards us? You know the grace of God pursues the heart of man? My favorite, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Jonah, because I'm Jonah. And if you study it, you realize Jonah was not an ignorant man. He knew God, God had used him. There's even a point in Kings where it tells us that because of the prophecy of a man called Jonah of Gathi, but lands were restored to Israel. Wow, God had used him powerfully nationally. He knew God. You read his conversation, and you actually read the end of the book. That's the easy way to understand Jonah. You read Jonah 4.2 first, because he says, while I was in my land, and you get the prayer with God and Jonah at the end of the book, which tells what was going on in his mind at the beginning of the book. And he ran away. He knew in full knowledge, and all the experience of God, he ran. He wasn't ignorant. He was intentional, willful, rebellious. What happens? The grace of God pursued him. Oh, do you know how much comfort that gives me? That not in my, just in my ignorance, but also in my willfulness, God pursues me in his grace. How wonderful is that? How wonderful. So he, he poses the question, do we really have such little faith? He then follows up by saying, so let's not worry. That's exactly how the next verse reads. He says, therefore do not worry. It's actually written in this way. So let's not worry. As if he's made the point, we got the point. Let's not worry. What we shall eat, or what we shall drink, or what we shall wear. Why? Because for all these things the Gentiles seek, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. The beauty is that, that God's not ignorant of what we need. It's written in the past tense, to know, and it uses a word to describe complete, total knowledge. God has always known what we need. In every aspect of that. And he knows that the Gentiles, the nations, continually <laughs> seek these things. And remember this passage is all about focus. Follow money, treasure treasure on earth. Light, 
Look at the light or look at the darkness. You can only do one. Two masters, you can follow one. You'll hate the other. Be loyal to one, you'll speak against the other. You can't. You just can't do it. You can't run in two directions, however we might try. So he says, let's not worry. Then he gives us the fourth command, and it's one that we are very, very aware of. So he says, but, do something different. Don't live like the culture and the world around you that is driven by all these things. That's a reality. We have to work. We have to feed ourselves. We have to clothe ourselves. And we're all very grateful that we're all wearing clothes. You know, those things have to happen. But if they become the sole thing that, that our focus is upon, this is exactly what Jesus is dealing with in the passage. But he says, but if I don't make them the sole focus, how am I gonna? What am I gonna wear? What am I gonna eat? How am I gonna live? Well, isn't this the purpose of the passage? He says, the fourth command he gives, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. He uses a word that the Greeks use to describe lifelong pursuit. He has an implication of two things, time and effort. There are 119 times in the New Testament this word is used, and in nearly all of those instances it's used of God-seeking man. If you want a picture of what it likes, means to look like seeking something, think of God seeking man. The intent, the effort, the will, the desire, the resilience. And he says, but you continually seek God's things. The kingdom of God. That's distinct from the kingdom of anything else. Seek first. Make it a lifelong pursuit. Run hard. Charge it like a raging bull. You know? Seek first. Pursue the heart of God. If you want a picture of it, see how you have been pursued by God. That's a great picture. That illustrates, doesn't it? Wow. As he's pursued me, I want to pursue him. Seek first. It's about priority. He says, seek first. And the idea here is, is that it's the first thing we do. It is the priority. The first thing we do and the most important thing we do. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. You'll get them. That's the promise. That's the challenge and the promise. And the privilege of living without the anxiety of what's going to happen is that if I pursue God, and it, it sounds too good to be true, and in many ways it is too be good. It is too good, not to be true, but it is too good. Artie Kendall said this. He says, "Put God first, and you'll have all you need." And you'll get to live in a place where worry is not determining the past, the present, or the future. Pursue the Lord. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things 
his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, he makes the application. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry by itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, that's not particularly comforting. There's going to be a lot of trouble today, but there's enough for it in God's provision. We, we have, um, as believers in Christ, we have a, a unique, so many aspects to our lives that are unique from the culture around us. Some are in how we should live in terms of our holiness and what we do that demarks us and demarks us from the culture and the environment around us. But also in experience. We get to do something that the world doesn't get to do. There's a lot of things we get to do the world doesn't get to do. But we get to do something. We get to live in a state where we have the God of the universe who promises us that he will care for us. And in doing so, backed by the might of heaven and the word of God himself, backed by all authority. You read Matthew 28, 19, 20, it says, all authority has been given to me. Go make disciples, I'm with you always. Two things you need, the power of God and the presence of God. Backed by all authority, he says, if you seek me first, I will deal with these things for you. That's a place of peace. That's something that is in very short supply in this world. And we are to be different people, not simply by what we say, what we do, but also by what we experience. We get to live in a place where anxiety doesn't rule us. And we're not talking about that, today I had an anxiety, today I had a worry about this. We're not talking about that, that, that condemnation of a moment of worry. We're talking about living in a lifestyle of worry. I, I want you to read something with me. This kind of excites me. Is it you? No, nobody in the room is excited by this, this amazing privilege that everybody wants. Okay. Each to your own. Okay, turn with me. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Favorite, some of the favorite verses. And, and it's, it's just astounding. This is cool. This is really cool. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Because there's, there's something here which is, which I think is so vital to understand about peace and the peace of God. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul, speaking from a prison in a book whose primary purpose and focus and meaning is all about joy, try and put those two things together, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, makes it command. And then in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, he says this, he says, don't be anxious for anything, not for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. First thing he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't let anything make you that anxious person. Same word. Pulled in different directions. He says, but when you find that place, what do you do in the moment? Well, you bring it to God in prayer. In prayer, in petition, with thanksgiving, and Give him your requests. And then what does he say? Promise. And the peace of God which passes all understanding. That word for passes all understanding is a really weird and complicated phrase with lots of letters in, which basically means the mind can't get hold of how good this peace is. You can't work out far it goes. 
You can't work out where its end is. You just can't get it. Right? Have you ever read one of those things where you just kind of read it and you go, I don't get this. And no matter how much you look at it, and how much you try and wrap your mind around it, you just don't get it. It's like terms and conditions on baggages for airlines. It's like a dark art. Understanding airline ticket prices, it's like, I mean, you've literally got to study Eastern mysticism to get a basic idea of what's going on. You just can't wrap your head around it. That's what that word means. The peace of God, which you are unable to understand it. But he says, you'll experience it. What's it going to do? It's going to guard your heart and your mind. Now, he uses a word here that's an unusual word to use for the idea of guarding in the New Testament. It means to besiege a city. And the idea is that when you besiege a city, you station people all the way around it, and you block off every entrance and exit that would allow them to escape or food to go in. You besiege them. That's what the peace of God does. It finds every point of entrance or exit where something might get in to mess with you, and it blocks it off. It besieges you in a really great way. Your heart, and what else? Your mind. Because isn't the challenge so much here? Not just here. The heart, oh gosh, the heart willingly wants to, but the mind, sometimes it just can't get past. What a promise. The peace of God would, would block, besiege every entrance and exit of both heart and, heart and mind to keep you in peace. We have a privilege, and we are a privileged people. We get to live not ruled by anxiety and worry. And we're not talking about the temporal thing when the electricity bill falls and you go, like, what am I going to do? You know, when the kids come home and you, you had internet and they came home and three days later they've used it all up. What am I going to do? We're not talking about that moment. We're talking about the overruling day-to-day lifestyle of worry. Because what it does, it distracts you from following the Lord and from living for him. And he says, if you make that priority of following and living for me, I will keep you in all these things. I'm ask the worship team to come back and just lead us in a bit of worship. And I encourage you, if, if, if it's you today, be encouraged. Do we really have such little faith that God won't look after us? I think we have. We believe that God will. It may just be the moment of circumstances which has derailed us. But I encourage you, take hold of the promise. And maybe you want to talk with somebody. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. You know, I guess that's available. And maybe after the service or even now. But maybe in, in, in the time of worship as these guys just lead us, you don't have to sing. If you want to sing, praise God, wonderful. But maybe take a moment in the privacy of the music to go, Lord, I have too many worries. And I don't want to live on the basis of them. And I want to follow you. And will you deal with this stuff? And that peace which you're never going to understand will start guarding things. Amen? Let's pray and these guys will lead us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we, we get to have peace of heart and live in the light of peace. Not because we take medication. Not because we, we find a pastime which numbs the pain. 
but because we have you. And your promise is that as we are to look at the birds, the pukekos, the useless bird on the planet, if we get to look at the lilies of the field that don't do anything to look so good and recognize that they are that way because you in your providential care love them and care for them. And they're temporal. They're temporal. And yet you have sent your son for us. How could we not believe in your care for us? That having given us Christ, you have given us all things. And may we live in that peace. And as people live differently with the world, not only in our actions and what we do and what we don't, but in our experience, that we will be people who will be known as they're joyful, they have peace. They're not ruled by anxiety. Lord, we thank you. Lord, you are good. And we thank you, your grace pursues our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.